is the curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. This conversation with Dr. Bill Plotkin feels like one of the most important that I've recorded to date. Bill is a depth psychologist and wilderness guide, and his work for me has been an immense treasure trove of practical wisdom and guidance for thinking about my own growth. We start out exploring his definition for what it means to be a genuine adult and the map of the five stages to the descent to soul. He shares what he calls the four facets of mind, which is a pretty unique framework for personal development. And we also talk about this really powerful idea of sacred wound work. Uh, I also love at the end, we, we get into what it means to him to fill one's space with a question, which I think is a, is a beautiful practice. Okay, uh, without further ado, I give you this soul-nourishing conversation with Dr. Bill Plotkin. Hey there, Bill. I'm so thrilled to be speaking with you, and I've been looking forward to this for, honestly, a really long time. Um, how are you feeling right now in your body in three words? Um, alive. Um, something like electric. Hmm. And centered hmm. okay well by way of a, a brief introduction um your first book soulcraft that i believe was published almost two decades ago um has probably along with some of the poetry of david white shifted my lens on the world more than really anything else that i've come across um and the experience of reading your your recent book the journey of soul initiation it felt it felt to me like receiving a like a true labor of love and perhaps a book that might not be fully appreciated for for its ideas for decades to come and um this morning before we jumped on this call i was i was reflecting on why i think your work has resonated so strongly and my sense is that you've given me this this language and a, a precise map to to describe territory that i'd accidentally stumbled into without really much guidance a few years ago so my intention for this conversation is, is really to take our listeners on a journey of sorts through some of these pretty radical ideas that you have. Um, and obviously with the disclaimer that we'll only be able to scrape, really scrape the surface of your work in the next 90 minutes or so. But um, my hope is that this will plant a seed for listeners to begin some of their own explorations. Um, and I'd like to start with a, a question that is something of a ritual for this podcast. And the question is, were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, could you maybe share a story about something that you were curious about? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Haven't got that one before. Um, I think I was normally curious as a child, which um, relative to the current uh, circumstances might now be considered exceptionally curious. <laughs> um, I believe my curiosity, my natural innate curiosity as a child was not suppressed as much as 
um, has become very common mm-hmm. in contemporary industrialized dominator culture contexts. So I, I think to, to be a human child is to be exceptionally curious. Um, in my uh, map of soul-centric human development from my book, Nature and the Human Soul, uh, wonder, I ended up having to say that wonder is the mm-hmm. primary um, gift that children in middle childhood, roughly age four to 12, mm-hmm. um, offer to their community and to their people. We just, we just have this natural deep wonder. Um, so a couple of stories is that I wondered about death a lot as a child, mm-hmm. partly because I had a series of repeating dreams, probably starting at age four or so, I was extremely young, about um, being in a, a dry, deserty, what I would later call a deserty land and being called by an ethereal song into what turned out to be a cemetery and, mm. and essentially apprenticing to some monks who, who, um, who were um, attending to the dead. Mm. Um, so I was particularly curious about that. Um, maybe it's not that unusual, I really don't know, but I, I did wonder about, not so much about dying, but about what death is. And um, other, another brief story about my exceptional curiosity was about the natural world. There was, it seemed so um, mysterious and magnificent mm-hmm. and, and welcoming to me. Um, and I was fortunate to befriend another boy when I was probably just six years old and who came from a family. His family was one that was very much nature oriented, which was unusual, even back then in the 50s. Um, In the US, this was a suburb of Boston, Massachusetts. And um, Joseph um, led me out into the forest and where we spent much of our free time for a few years. So yeah, the curiosity about about all these to me, um, unusual and unexpected places and creatures and um, of the of the natural world, and mm. um, really, it grounded me in, in a way that it served me very deeply. Mm. That's beautiful. Um, thank you for sharing. And before we get into the crux of your work. Mm-hmm. I think it would be helpful to give something of an overview of the terrain and and maybe set the scene by briefly sharing something of your own journey. And, and specifically, could you speak to how this curiosity led you to explore some of the mysteries of, of life and death? And what was it that drew you to the idea of conducting a, a self-guided vision fast in, uh, in, back in 1980? Yeah, it was um, really what really was grounded in my curiosity that as an uh, older person, I would now say it was a spiritual curiosity. To me, it was just a natural curiosity about 
life and death and what is it to be human? Mm. And even a big question for me in my early teens was what was it, what is it to be a person? Hmm. Um, <laughs> it was, I was a curious one. I think, I mean, later I thought I was kind of curious, but I was quite clear that I wasn't a person yet. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> and that someday I would become a person. So huh. these are some of the questions I, I had as a, a young person. Um, and one way to say all this is that my natural spiritual, what we would call in the Western world, our natural spiritual curiosity was not suppressed fully, at least. Um, and it's part of my family background growing up. Um, I received a, or was, um, had imposed upon me a religious education mm-hmm. um, in what at the time was, you know, contemporary Judaism, which was, had lost where I lived for sure for sure it lost its mystical roots entirely. Um, And so I recognized early on that that my deepest and biggest questions were not being answered by the religious tradition of my family at all. It wasn't even being touched. I mean, that there was no foot being set into that terrain whatsoever. And so um, it wasn't until my first year of college that I had an opportunity to study other spiritual approaches. And these were the um, the spiritualities um, from other lands, mostly from the East, from the Orient, that at that time in the late 60s and 70s were flooding into the Western world. Um, and I benefited in all kinds of ways from those disciplines. At first, the first one was Zen Buddhism, and then Kundalini Yoga, and also the fourth way teachings of um, Gurdjieff, Sufi, and um, later Tibetan Buddhism. Um, But my deepest questions, my biggest questions were not being answered at all in any of those um, disciplines or perspectives or practices. So I just kept looking. And one thing I had recognized from my late teens on was that where I felt most like myself and most in touch with the sacred was in wild places. And I had a privileged uh, upbringing and a privileged life ever since in that, among other things, I was able to get into wild places um, and often did solo trips, also went with friends and so forth. But the solo trips especially um, left me with this sense of, um, or filled me with this sense that um, the sacred is alive and well, but it's it's not in the human village much anymore. Um, then um, towards my mid to late 20s, I discovered the work of two people who became two very important teachers for me, Stephen Foster and Meredith Little, California, uh, with the School of Lost Borders. They are the founders. And um, since the late 70s, they were busy uh, reintroducing the pan-human vision fast to the contemporary Western world. Um, And so I corresponded with them for a while. That was back in the late 70s when people actually wrote letters on pieces of paper and sent them to each other. And um, among other things, they sent me their an early version of their handbook on the contemporary vision fast. And that led me to take myself out to into the um, wild uh, on my own 
uh, for five days, fasted for four days and four nights in the high Colorado mountains at Treeline uh, in late August, which is early fall for that altitude and latitude. Um, and um, on that fast, on that fourth day, I had what I later would come to identify as a soul encounter, my first soul encounter. And by soul encounter, I mean a glimpse of the way David White, the poet, says it is uh, the truth at the center of the image you're born with, um, which is poetry. And and but if you take it as really pointing, is really addressing, is really embracing a reality. It's it's a good one to to wrap, try to wrap our minds around um, because it might begin to melt our minds a little bit, our Western minds, that this idea that we're each born, every human is born with an image or something like an image. It might be a poet, poem or a song or a dance or um, a shape of some sort or a body feeling, but more generally an image. We're born with an image and there's a truth at the center of it. And that truth is the truth that we are uniquely designed to live in our lives. But we don't remember this, this truth that we're born with at the center of this image. Um, and it's natural not to, because we have some work to do in childhood to become a, a particular kind of human, which is to say a human rooted in a particular culture, which another way to say it is that our ego needs to be um, shaped linguistically and culturally in a certain kind of way. Um, and then we need to take that foundation and create our own social way of being present in the world. Mm. Um, and once we get through that, which most contemporary people never do, mm -hmm. um, then we enter the stage of life where um, we can go through an initiatory process, usually of several years, where we'll, if it goes well, we'll just we'll remember that truth that's pre-linguistic, that truth at the center of the image we were born with. Mm. Um, and very briefly, what happened for me on the fourth day of that fast, um, by then I was in course a, a very non-ordinary state of consciousness and I was having conversations with a spruce tree who had by then become a monk, a Zen monk for me. And he was teaching me about stillness and awareness and consciousness. And then he gestured to his left and I followed his gesture and I saw a large yellow butterfly flying towards me and it came all the way to me and actually brushed the left side of my face with its wing. Mm. And I heard her say in English, as she went past me, she said, cocoon weaver, which I thought that was interesting. But in the moment, it didn't seem any more interesting than this community of, of little mammals called pikas that I'd been watching for days and how good they were at gathering uh, plants and herbs for the coming winter. And I had 
taken them as my teachers of what it might be to be a spiritual gatherer. Mm. Um, and I felt a little bit interrupted by the butterfly for about a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and then the reality of what just happened hit me um, in mm. the belly first emotionally and, and kind of a, a gasp came out of my, I heard my self gasp and I realized mm. as I had been shown what I, since then I would say is the truth at the center of the image I was born with. And mm. I've spent um, 40 years since learning about what it is to weave cocoons. Mm. Wow. Um, wow. This, this feels like a, a really beautiful access point to, I think a lot of, a lot of your work and the things I'd love to talk to you about. And I feel like it might be, it might be interesting to share a couple of your pretty radical claims up front. Um, and let's maybe start with your, your assertion that every crisis that we're facing in the world today, including, say, biodiversity breakdown, climate collapse, is the result of what you describe as arrested human development. Um, and, and I think that you, you mentioned that as much as maybe 80% of humanity haven't really progressed beyond this, this early stage adolescence, um, which is associated with creating a a secure and authentic self. So let's maybe start there. Um, could you speak to this and how your, how your definition is distinct from some of the other contemporary models of adulthood and, and what does it mean to be a true elder according to your maps? Yeah, well, that'll keep us busy for a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I have, I would say reluctantly, come to a whole set of radical conclusions. Mm. I didn't set out um, being as, I guess you'd say, iconoclastic or as radical as I've ended up. Um, but I've just tried to make the realities on the ground um, consistent with some way of understanding what's going on in the world and what's and how it happened and its roots really thousands of years ago. So, Yes, as you say, Johnny, I ended up concluding that um, at least 80% of people in contemporary industrialized cultures um, never get past um, what in a healthy culture would be considered early adolescence. It's not the way we think of adolescence in the contemporary world. But um, so I say in my book, Nature and the Human Soul, I have this eight-stage model that's nature-based and soul-centric of the stages that I believe we're, we humans in any culture are meant to go through. Um, and the one I call early adolescence um, seems to be where most people in non-Indigenous, or I should more generally say non-nature-based contemporary industrialized cultures get stuck. Um, it's a stage that starts at puberty and doesn't necessarily ever end. Um, and how we get stuck there is a few different ways to say it. One is that in a, a culture or society that has few adults, few true adults, and I'm going to define this in a little while as you asked, and very few true elders well, think about it for a second. If that's true, that's a radical idea that we have very few true adults and elders in the contemporary world. 
if that's true, well, how does that affect children and youth? Children, you know, you know, like we're all elderless children, you might say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way that we're raised is missing a kind of context that is absolutely essential for most people to truly mature. Um, so when you lose, when a society loses most of its adults and elders, true ones, then um, childhood is degraded and uh, early our teen years as well. Mm. So it seems one of the gifts we get from nature is that um, neurologically normal humans get to the third stage of life, which again, I call early adolescence, Mm -hmm. Um, no matter how poor their um, psychosocial uh, environment was during childhood. Um, but one, the pattern seems to be that all healthy, intact, mature cultures have ways to take over the job that nature has done so well for us in our development to, that takes us into puberty. Um, but a healthy culture then provides culturally uh, designed initiatory ceremonies and practices and perspectives that help a um, young person um, get to true adulthood, which is a stage. This is the stage that in my map corresponds to late adolescence. Please don't confuse that, anybody, with our late teen years. It's a psychological stage that most contemporary people never reach. Mm-hmm. And it's during late adolescence, which you won't be surprised to know, I call the cocoon. It's during that stage of several years that we go through this journey of soul initiation. And every healthy culture, I believe, has had some version of a set of practices and perspectives that help young people uh, go through that journey. And I believe every healthy, mature culture of the future will have a version of it. Um, And um, it's what we've lost thousands of years ago in the contemporary world. Um, but what we've been doing at Animus Valley Institute, my colleagues and I, there's, we have about 20 guides right now um, offering immersions, experiential immersions in many places in the world, maybe 15 or so different countries. Um, what we've been developing for 40 years and we're still developing it is you could say is two aspects to it. One is that we've been looking at the basic, what we call deep structure patterns of the journey of soul initiation. Mm-hmm. And um, we've created uh, maps of this journey and maybe we'll get into that uh, later in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and But we're attempting to create maps that just might be uh, consistent with these kinds of uh, initiatory practices found anywhere in the world. That's our attempt with the, the mm. deep structure map. Mm. But more importantly, what we're doing is, have been doing and are still doing, is creating a contemporary Western nature-based version mm. of that journey. In other words, we haven't um, borrowed from traditions, other traditions, especially to indigenous traditions. There are some universal patterns that we seem to find that anthropologists have um, identified um, from around the world and some of these common patterns. 
like um, rhythm, trance rhythm, or dream work, or deep imagery work, and so on. Mm-hmm. But the um, specific, the more specific kinds of practices we use are really drawn from Western mysticism. Um, so, larger point here again is that um, what we've been doing is is creating one version, a contemporary nature-based Western version. Mm. Um, and um, we know that every culture and probably really every subculture has to create their own version. And that's one reason that I've put a lot of emphasis into the deep structure because mm. um, the, the deeper patterns can be manifested or embodied in, in an unlimited number of ways. And again, every culture and maybe subculture would need to do it in a way that fit their people in their place. Mm-hmm. Um, to get to these other things you asked about an adult, um, one of my phrases for a true adult is a visionary artisan of cultural renaissance or regeneration or evolution. A visionary artisan of cultural regeneration. That's what a true adult would be uh, doing or, or would uh, in our, the contemporary world that we'd be doing regeneration because we don't have healthy cultures now. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a healthy culture, uh, an adult is a visionary artisan of cultural evolution because healthy living cultures are always evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be a little bit more just a bit more detailed about my definition of an adult. Here it is. It's a person who's come to experience their primary belonging or their primary membership as being in the larger earth community in the more than human world. So that true adult is someone, and this this first part is actually true of a healthy adolescent, is someone whose life is so deeply enriched by their particular uh, family, language, ethnic and religious um, traditions, where they live, their personal style and so on. But their primary, the, the way they experience their membership in the world primarily is, is as, as something like a human animal uh, member of the greater earth community. And to continue with this definition of an adult is it's somebody, this is somebody who has had one or more glimpses or visions or revelations of their unique place in that greater earth community, um, which is to say of their unique ecological niche, which by the way, is the definition I've ended up with for the word soul. Um, and maybe I'll say some more about that later, especially if one of us remembers that why I ended up defining soul mm-hmm. as in an ecological way as our unique ecological niche. Mm. So, so this is a third part to this definition of an adult, but taking a running start from the beginning, an, a true adult is someone who experiences their membership primarily or um, foundationally in the greater earth community has had one or more visions revelations of their place or their unique niche in that community and has found a way to embody or manifest or express that unique niche as a gift to the earth community, including their, their human village. Um, and 
So all of this is really a way of saying that um, a true adult is uh, someone who has discovered or remembered their visionary way of serving life, of enhancing life, mm -hmm. of enhancing the sacred. Um, and there's two stages of adulthood. I won't distinguish them right now. But after the second half of adulthood, and if we're fortunate and live long enough, we move into the first stage of, of two, of elderhood. And an elder, first and foremost, is someone who was an adult for a couple decades, usually. <laughs> um, you can't skip adulthood and get to elderhood. <laughs> That sounds obvious, right? <laughs> yeah, it does sound kind of obvious, but yeah. um, a yeah. lot of older people now who are longing in our contemporary cultures, who are longing so deeply mm -hmm. to be useful and to serve the world, and who never, most of whom never went through adulthood and maybe not even late adolescence, mm. are asking, how can I be an elder? And it's a good question. And there's kinds of answers but it's different from what I mean by an elder. I'm not in any way meaning to criticize anybody's um, longing to be of service. Mm. But my understanding of a genuine elder is someone who no longer is placing their primary focus on delivering their unique gift to the world because by the time elderhood starts, that's kind of on, I guess, we call it something like automatic pilot. It just happens. It just comes through us without our attempting anymore, having to attempt it. Mm. Um, and so an, a true elder is able to move on to a different role in the world. And that is a person who tends to the soul of the more than human world. Mm. And there's lots of examples of what that means, but um, one of them, maybe the most important one to mention in this day and age, is that there has to be a group of people, mature people in any given culture, who is taking this big picture, this big, this kind of 30,000 foot view of their own culture and asking, how well are my people doing keeping the balance good between our human village and the, the greater world? Are we, in fact, not just sustaining life in our bioregion, our watershed, but or at this point, our planet, but are we actually enhancing life? Because that's what all life is designed to do is not just sustain life, but it, to enhance it. Mm -hmm. If we were just, if life was just about sustaining life, then we never would have gotten past on this planet, the single cell organism level of, um, of our early evolution. But life, we know, and every species is designed to give away, to gift life in its place, and every species does. And why we humans seem to be an exception, maybe we'll get to that one later. That's a really important piece. Mm -hmm. um, so an elder is someone who's um, tending to the uh, conversation between the human world and the more than human world and making that conversation very much alive in a way that that enhances life. Mm. So you can see that my definitions of adulthood and elderhood are unfamiliar to most people, unless you've read my books or something similar to them. And um, 
these definitions are completely off the map, off the radar of the contemporary Western mainstream, that the idea of what it is to be mature mm-hmm. in the Western world would be a slightly poor version of what a healthy culture would call a healthy early adolescent. Mm. Mm. Okay, well, that um, that feels like a, a great segue into the structure of your of your recent book, which really outlines the five necessary phases for this soul descent into true adulthood, um, which, if I if I remember, initially begins with the the preparation and and like strengthening the foundations of ourself, um, and then moving towards ego dissolution and and you speak about the undoing of our social identities um i think about this like the the caterpillar literally turning into mush in in the cocoon uh thirdly by uh going into the soul encounter which um was like the butterfly that you that you encountered on your on your first vision fast um and then emerging back into the world through metamorphosis and finally what you refer to as enactment um which which is a beautiful word and for context for listeners as well, this, each of these phases has between one and three chapters in your, in your book. Would you, would you say that any differently or maybe add a little color to this overview and um, yeah, just flesh this out slightly? That was a great overview, Johnny. <laughs> um, here's a little, little context first. And that is um, the journey of soul initiation is uh, essentially this fourth stage of life, which in a healthy culture we'd consider um, late adolescence, and I call the, it the cocoon. Um, and within the journey of soul initiation, there's a particularly special and important spiritual adventure that occurs, has to occur at least once, although it can occur several times and can even occur after the initiatory journey. And I call that the descent to soul. In any given descent to soul, uh, which is this um, experience that I've created this deep structure map that has five phases, as you just mentioned, Johnny. Um, This uh, descent to soul is um, the itself can take place over several weeks or even months, quite some time. Uh, The more one understands what's going on and the better guidance you have, the quicker it can be. But usually one is not in a hurry to get through it anyways. It's quite an extraordinary spiritual adventure. Um, And it's during that descent to soul, any given descent to soul, that we have a glimpse of our, our soul. We have a soul encounter experience. <clears throat> but okay, before going into that some more, I want to emphasize that this is an experience that doesn't happen until the cocoon stage or the late adolescent stage. And the vast majority of contemporary people haven't reached that stage yet. And for some people that some people are tempted to tune me out at this moment because it's like I'm saying, well, you're not very mature if you're not in this stage yet. And that's not true by contemporary Western standards. um, The most mature people tend to be 
people in this early adolescent stage who are starting to ask these questions and who are resonating with the things that we're talking about today. Um, that's by Western contemporary standards, that's a, a pretty um, high level of maturity actually. And, um, and by standard um, pr uh, dimensions or uh, definitions of maturity, um, there are this percentage of people in early adolescence who are actually quite mature by traditional standards. Um, but I'm emphasizing this now to say that, and this, by the way, this principle is something that is mostly missing in Western psychology, developmental psychology, namely that um, there are these stages of life beyond what we consider the uh, Western norm, these adult and elder stages, and that there are spiritual and other kinds of experiences that you simply can't have until you get to these later stages. Mm -hmm. um, we tend to think, for example, in the spiritual world, contemporary spiritual world, that any spiritual experience is available to anyone if you um, do the practices of that tradition and or have a teacher in that tradition. And it that completely leaves out that the kind of spiritual experience you can have depends on what stage of life you're in. Right. Um, and that's, we're just not used to thinking that way. So mm. I'm, I'm emphasizing that um, if a person's in early adolescence, I'm gonna say a bit about how you would know, then that's the place to focus and not try to be on a descent to soul or uh, the journey of soul initiation before you're ready, because it won't work. Mm. Mm. And it might be worse than it doesn't work. Uh, it could be really dangerous. So, okay. So I think you can see, Johnny, when I'm going to back up here a bit and say a little bit more about early adolescence. Mm, please. Um, it's essentially the stage where we're creating a personal and social presence in the world that is both authentic and socially acceptable, at least to our peer, at least to one peer group. And that's where people get stuck and largely because of things they missed in childhood. And they missed it in childhood because there weren't um, many or any true adults or elders in their life. Um, so for example, in childhood, uh, in middle childhood, one of the essential tasks is to learn the enchantment of the natural world, is to, is to find your own way of becoming fully at home in the world uh, beyond our, the four walls of our house and even our, our village. And to have this deep communion with the, the larger earth community. And that's something, of course, we've been losing now for centuries in some ways, but especially over the last 50 years in a big way. Um, but okay, back to early adolescence, the <clears throat> there's two tasks of each stage of life in the model we've developed at Animus. And um, the tasks of each stage are different from any other stage, but each stage has a nature-oriented task and a culture-oriented task. Um, and the one I just mentioned about middle childhood, learning the enchantment of the natural world, that of course is the nature-oriented task. In early adolescence, the nature-oriented task is to hone our personal social sense of authenticity. And that's where most people have trouble in the contemporary world. To, 
just being able to honestly answer the question, who am I? What kind of person am I? What are my true values? What are my true interests? Um, what are the things I tolerate, can tolerate in the world and what can I not? Um, who is, what are my natural ways of showing up socially in my peer group? Um, I already mentioned it, what are my deepest interests in life? How do I express my emotions, my real emotions? These are just some examples of um, personal authenticity. Um, other examples are what are, what might be a job or career that really resonates with who I am and totally brings me alive and not, is not just a way of surviving. Mm -hmm. And also, what are the various social roles that fit who I am mm -hmm. and are not merely being imposed upon me or I'm, and I'm not merely imposing on myself? Um, am I trying to be some version of somebody who's really popular or am I trying to be a version of who I really am? These are all <laughs> personal authenticity questions. Mm -hmm. So um, if you're asking, if those are the big questions still in your life and they're really good questions, and by the way, early adolescence is as good a stage to be in as any other stage in life. And you can contribute to life from that stage, absolutely. But if these are the questions you're asking, um, namely about uh, career development and or earning more money or attracting um, a mate that um, is someone who you'd really like to be with, um, or what would be the great next vacation and so on. That suggests that a, a person's in early adolescence and needs to work on those tasks of early adolescence, especially the authenticity, the personal authenticity mm. tasks. So for one example, there's a big movement developing now in the Western world, maybe the first world more generally, um, that might be called the purpose movement. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of people being trained as guides to helping others find their purpose. And uh, this, at least 99% of this, which there's a lot of really great work being done, but most all of it is um, early adolescent purpose, is helping people discover what brings them alive in a social and vocational sense. It's very, very, very important. Mm -hmm. And that movement is really coming at just the right time. Mm -hmm. But here's what I want to emphasize, that developing social and vocational and creative authenticity is a completely different thing than what happens on the journey of soul initiation during the next stage. Mm -hmm. Okay, maybe enough about that. Just... Uh, to help people get clear. yeah no that's that's super that's super helpful and I, i'd actually love to hone in slightly on this preparation phase because i think it will be really accessible and relevant to a lot of listeners and as you said i think the preparation in itself can be this extra incredibly rich spell um and i and i thought that the idea of deliberately strengthening our egos in some ways as opposed to thinking of it as being the enemy is a really powerful reframe um, so perhaps could you give us a, a incredibly brief overview of the what, what you call the four facets of mind um, and this full spectrum of humanness um, and, and maybe briefly like what are the associated ways of knowing with each of these four directions? 
Yeah, good. Um, this is um, part of the uh, preparation phase of the descent to soul, but it's more generally what people do in early adolescence um, to help them get through that stage, to help them develop uh, their personal authenticity their, on a social level. Um, but when we get to the cocoon stage and we're preparing for descent to soul, then we're asking, okay, what, what, what did I leave out? What did I, what preparation activities or dimensions did I not do enough of in early adolescence? Okay. So again, just to make that distinction mm -hmm. between yeah, uh, the stage of early adolescence and the preparatory phase of the mm -hmm. of a descent to soul in late adolescence. Mm -hmm. I know I'm confusing some people, but you, know, you could read more about it in in the book. Okay, so um, part of this in, in both cases, both in early adolescence and when we're preparing for a descent in late adolescence, the cocoon stage, um, we need to have honed or cultivated what I call our four facets of a. a for innate facets of human wholeness. The idea here is that each one of us is born with certain capacities um, that are part of our wholeness and that we need in order to do anything in life well. And um, part of the idea is that each one of us is born with maybe one of the four facets that's relatively easy for us to cultivate, but the other three more difficult. And one of those other three really difficult. And in the contemporary world, we tend to put our emphasis on things we're already good at, already strong in. Mm -hmm. uh, and But in order to move through, progress in our human development, we actually have to put our main emphasis on the things we're weakest in. And that's, again, that's kind of un-American and un-Western. And, and that's one of the, another one of the reasons why um, we tend to get stuck developmentally. And an adult, a true adult or an elder who's supporting a younger person, they'll help them see the facets of wholeness that they're weak in and need to put some, give some attention to. So with no further ado, um, the four facets of wholeness, which I've mapped, uh, I always use nature's templates as, as my maps, as do all indigenous cultures. Um, so I've used the four cardinal directions, what we experience in the, um, and when we look to the south, east, north, west, um, and also the um, four seasons for the places in the world that have four seasons and the four times of day where you have everywhere, of course, sunrise, noon, sunset, and, and midnight. And um, so I'm, I'm trying to make this incredibly belief, uh, brief. The uh, north facet of our human wholeness, I call the, um, the nurturing generative adult. This is the part of us that is the healer, the leader, the one who gets things done, um, that can heal ourselves as well as heal others. Um, and this capacity of, you might say, more generally, leadership is a very important piece to develop. That's something that we're, is very much on our radar in the contemporary, more progressive realms of, of uh, Western society. 
Then in the East, there's what I call the innocent sage or the innocent slash sage. Um, <clears throat> and this is our, our capacity to be fully present in any given moment, a capacity that has that is generally undermined by contemporary Western education, family life, um, cyber devices, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's also our, our natural wisdom in the East, the innocent sage. It's our capacity to see the big picture, um, to not get attached uh, to things, um, and to be, as I'd say, very fully and, and deeply present with our bodies and our, our minds, our consciousness to what is, what, what is happening uh, in any given moment. In the South <clears throat> is what I call the wild indigenous one. And by indigenous, I simply mean a person who experiences their belonging or that part of us that experiences our belonging in the greater earth community. The, this wild indigenous one, this south facet is also um, fully at home with all human emotions, finds every emotion to be useful, no such thing as a toxic emotion to this part of us, to other parts of us, yeah, there are toxic emotions, but not to this part. Every emotion has a lesson to teach us this part of us, this south facet, is um, also experiences its kinship with um, all life forms, all species, and all places. Um, and again, loves the experience of every emotion and how it feels in the body. And this part of us loves our body, thinks we got just the right body and cares for our body, this part of us. Hmm. Uh, the west facet, um, I call the dark muse beloved, because um, this part of us um, loves the unknown, loves the dark, um, is very conversant with dreams and dream life, um, loves the undoing, unraveling of things, including death and dying, is recognized this is an essential piece of, of life and has um, is sometimes called the inner beloved. This is uh, the part of us that knows things that our ego used to find quite puzzling, maybe still does. And this is the West facet is the part of us that has this greatest capacity for deep imagination mm. um, for uh, recognizing the unbidden thoughts and feelings and images that come from our depths. Okay, so that's a real brief overview of these four facets of wholeness. And if any one of these three or four actually um, seem unfamiliar to you, our listeners here today, then yeah, that's something that um, you'd want to cultivate and that would help you through early adolescence and would prepare you for the descent to soul. Um, again, all of this being explained in quite a greater detail in my book, Wild Mind. Yep. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I definitely point listeners, just, just encourage listeners throughout this to get a copy of the book and to dive into these areas more deeply. Um, I particularly appreciated the, 
the inclusion of the Eastern sacred fool and trickster archetype, which to me feels like it's missing from a lot of a lot of people who are taking their spiritual path just very seriously. Um, and I also found it fascinating that the the South and the West sides are in some ways deemed very feminine and almost dangerous in mainstream society. Um, and so again, speaking briefly to this, do you have any suggestions for listeners who maybe resonate with having underdeveloped South and West facets and things they could do to cultivate that? Yes, the South and the West facets are indeed the two that are most suppressed, not just neglected, but suppressed, actively suppressed in contemporary Western world. Um, that again, that's the wild indigenous one and the dark muse beloved. And one way to, to simplify a bit, just to make it easier to talk about is that um, the South facet is the one who specializes, you might say, in the window of knowing that we call feeling, and that includes our emotions, but also includes our ability to sense the vibe of people and places. So feeling more generally. And uh, the West facet is the one that has our has it has the greatest capacity for the deep imagination. So centuries, if not millennia ago in the Western world, um, after our societies began to degrade psycho-spiritually. Again, that's a whole story of why that happened. Mm -hmm. um, but millennia ago, um, the, the men who were had the most power in society um, had lost their capacities, especially in these two facets of wholeness having to do with, among other things, our capacity for feeling and our capacity for deep imagination, including dreaming. Um, and they actually, the men in power, protected themselves from these uh, capacities, these human capacities, because they couldn't keep doing, uh, which is say dominating mm -hmm. other people and, and the land mm -hmm. uh, if they had these capacities. And so it was trained out of them. Mm. And this is, has gone on for many, many, many centuries. And one of the ways they kept distant psychologically from these capacities that have to do with, among other things, feeling, emotion, and imagination is by saying, it's not us. It is not me. This is, this is something women have. It's feminine. Mm. And so this half, these two out of four dimensions of our humanity was were tossed out by what we generally refer to as the patriarchy as not me it's women and that these capacities need to be suppressed in well women have it more than men do in unhealthy societies that's not at all true in healthy societies and so women have to be suppressed um, and the patriarchal men had already suppressed it in themselves, these two sets of capacities. Mm -hmm. So one way to say it is that these two facets of wholeness are the two facets that are most subversive to contemporary dominator synthetic um, 
industrialized culture. And they are the two facets of homeless, homeless we most need, the two facets of homeless we most need to be cultivating in our children and our youth and in ourselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that's, it's incredibly powerful. I'm feeling, feeling goosebumps just listening to you describe that. Um, and something that I, um, something else I really wanted to highlight in your work, because I think it speaks to my own personal experience is the connection between trauma and what you refer to as our, as our sacred wound. And you've, you've shared that our encounter with soul would almost be impossible without one which to me feels like another really radical idea. And I think it's, it's one of the most potent um, concepts in your work that I've come across because it, it transforms what is our, maybe our greatest struggle and our pain, not to be something that is avoided, but as a, actually as a pathway to our true nature and to deep connection and, and is the only way into our gifts. So could you, again, relatively briefly describe what is core wound work and and perhaps also share the story of the the weavings of the of the native american um dine or dine people I, I don't know if i'm saying that right yeah dine dine yeah thank you yeah yeah um yeah i learned first learned about sacred wound from one of my teachers who i never met in person well actually i have met her in prison uh, a few years ago um, but didn't study with her in person. That's Jean Houston, uh, the psychologist, um, founder, developer of sacred psychology. Um, so in one of her books, I think it's called In Search of the Beloved, something like that. Um, she has one chapter on the sacred wound. Uh, it's something that uh, she uh, teaches us, was found in mythologies all around the world, that um, the hero or heroine or the god or goddess, you know, has this one place of vulnerability, like Achilles' heel, for example, um, maybe Persephone's abduction, um, and so on. And the idea here is that every human is born with a certain kind of vulnerability, a certain kind of sensitivity, and. Um, it's because of this vulnerability that our egos, which is say our conscious selves, um, never form so rigidly that we're immune to the arrows of mystery that want to penetrate us when it comes time for our initiatory journey in, in the cocoon stage. Mm. So if it wasn't for this um, ultimately sensitive, place in our psyches and our bodies, um, no human would ever be able to go through this initiatory journey. So it's, it's something that's a central piece of the design of a, of a human. Um, and the uh, Navajo people who call it, refer to themselves as the Diné, um, they're known among other things, um, they're here in the Southwest, I mean, yeah, Southwest uh, North America of the US. Um, among other things, they are uh, fabulously uh, skilled weavers. And they tell us that one thing they do in all their weavings is they, they make what you could call a deliberate mistake. There's some place in the weaving 
um, where there's something off, there's a line, there's a thread that is out of place as if a mistake had been made, but it's in fact quite deliberate and they call it the spirit line. And they say it's the way that spirit or mystery or the divine gets into this, uh, this work of art. And that anything that's alive has a spirit in it. And so, um, so what we are saying is that um, that's um, soul-oriented psychologists is that a human being is a kind of work of art created by mystery. And we have this spirit line. Um, another way of understanding this is through Leonard Cohen's, one of Leonard Cohen's famous songs where he speaks, where he says there's a, a hole in everything. That's how the, the light gets in. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain kind of hole in our human psyches or especially in our egos. And how this works is it's something there's two parts that make up a sacred wound. We actually, at Animus, we use the phrase core wound before one has done one's spiritual work with this wound. And when you do the work with the wound or let the wound do its work on you, um, then it becomes a sacred wound mm. um, in the way we talk about it. So, But initially it's a core wound and there's two parts of it. And one is something we're born with and the other second part is one or more things that happen to us after we're born. And um, or even con conceived. So the thing that we're conceived with or born with is a innate vulnerability or sensitivity. It's a sensitivity to a particular um, kind of um, experience. Um, like some people are born with a sensitivity to um, the vulnerabilities of, of little animals or insects and so forth, and are just virtually destroyed by um, seeing the suffering of, a, of another being, um, no matter how small. Um, and so this is something we're born with where, but to make a core wound, there has to be one or more events in a person's life that, that um, kind of enters that sensitivity like a key into a lock it's an experience that that brings alive that incredible vulnerability and often it's some kind of what we would call abuse and neglect from in our human realm but it doesn't necessarily have to be it could be um like a big storm a natural disaster it could be a, a like um, a childhood disease or a loss of a family member when we're young, something that touches our innate sensitivity in such a way that it brings that wound very much alive. Mm. And so we learn to protect ourselves from those kinds of events and experiences uh, through childhood and early adolescence. But in late adolescence, one of the doorways to the descent to soul, it's only one of the doorways, but it's not an uncommon one, is that we deliberately go back into the, um, the memories and this, especially the somatic memories of any one of those early events that we considered wounding. Again, whether it was at the hands of another human or otherwise. Mm -hmm. And we let ourselves um, experience 
experience to remember that what happened to us and with part of the goal being to get to that and that original um, pre-birth sensitivity that, that we're or vulnerability that we're born with because that vulnerability is actually a power a kind of soul power and we're not able to claim it and embody it until we go through this um this recapitulation if you will or re-experiencing of the original wounding events and the attempt here is not to heal it because kind of like a spirit line um this these are not meant to be healed and they're not healable this is not like what we usually can in western psychology consider healing work this is something very different and that you wouldn't want to do or probably not capable of doing until uh, the cocoon stage and so this wound actually does its metamorphic work on our egos. It actually helps shapeshift our ego from an adolescent, a healthy adolescent ego towards an adult ego. Um, and it's not a, the pattern seems to be not everybody ends up doing sacred wound work in the cocoon, but a lot of people do. And um, it's, a, it's a very, again, it's a very different perspective on what a wound is than we, normally have in in western society mm -hmm. yeah that that really resonates with me um and i i guess i'll i'll share that from my own in my own life and experience i i initially discovered your book soulcraft in the wake of losing my fiance mm. who um at the time she suffered from bipolar and she took her own life after a anxiety attack at work wow and it was embracing some of these waves of grief and watching large aspects of myself and my future plans and my sense of home just self-combust. Um, and this was really a catalyst for me diving into some of my own wounding. And I haven't really spoken about this aspect publicly before, but um, a couple of years ago, I made a, a pilgrimage to Nepal um, specifically to the foothills of the Himalayas. And I spent three nights drinking ayahuasca followed by four nights of fasting in relative solitude. Um, and there were many interesting experiences in this journey. Um, but towards the end of that fast, I, I experienced what I consider to be a thread of what you've termed as a, a mythopoetic identity. Um, and in this, in this vision, in this image, I saw... I saw a man or, or almost like, like a warrior standing on the edge of a cliff, which in my mind represented oblivion. And he had a, a tear coming down his left eye, looking like gazing straight out into the unknown. And in his right hand, he was holding up the staff of a, of a question or a sacred question. And honestly, I'm, I'm still unpacking what this means and, and potentially how to work with it. Um, but I feel like I'm still in the midst of and, and maybe resisting the metamorphosis phase to some degree in that I've kind of got some clues to work with. But part of me is also feeling drawn to dive back in and see if there are deeper insights to be gleaned. And this is a lot of my story. Um, but I think the question I'm curious about is for those who've potentially found themselves um, on the other side of some level of soul encounter, what what advice do you have for 
reintegrating and attempting to make that vision real in the world? It's a big question. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're really great at big questions. Um, and of course, and thank you for that. Those uh, threads of your story, mm. including, did you say the warrior in his right hand mm. is holding a, something that the, has the, to do with the, the sacred question? The staff. It was a, the image of it, like almost like a question mark staff in my mind. Oh. <laughs> Okay, the staff is in the form of a question mark. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Um, yeah, well, um, earlier you you mentioned these five phases of the descent to soul, that particular spiritual adventure that's so important to the initiatory journey. Mm -hmm. And um, and I'm just going to review it again, The these five phases of the descent. Um, and as you said, mentioned earlier, Johnny, that the um, caterpillar goes through um, these kinds of phases. That's one of the, that's the nature template, one of the nature templates we've used to help ourselves and others understand the descent to soul. The preparation phase corresponding to the caterpillar creating a um, cocoon, if it's a moth butter uh, a moth caterpillar and uh, turning its own body into a chrysalis if it's a butterfly caterpillar um, and then the second phase dissolution or sometimes called dismemberment where the you know for us humans our identity our adolescent earlier adolescent identity just dissolves that and we lose all faith that we could ever experience ourselves again or identify ourselves in any primary way in terms of a social role or of a, of a vocation or even a creative project because we're moving towards a mythopoetic way of identifying ourselves, which is what happens during soul encounter. So in the second phase for the caterpillar, its body literally dissolves. Um, for us humans, our identity dissolves. And the next phase for the caterpillar is these biological cells that have been in its body all along, kind of like almost enemy stowaways that biologists call imaginal cells, hmm. um, they awaken. And they've these cells have been imagining uh, flight, hmm. a butterfly or moth flight forever. And now they awaken. Uh, and that corresponds to the human phase of a descent to soul, which is soul encounter, where we get a glimpse of the truth at the center of the image we were born with. Mm. Um, and then the fourth phase is metamorphosis. I'm going to come right back to that. And the fifth is enactment. But this is, I hear you asking, Johnny, about this phase of metamorphosis. What happens after the soul encounter? Mm -hmm. um, in, we used to think many years ago that, okay, you've had a soul encounter. Now you go home back to your human village or town or city um, and start offering your gift to your people. And for a caterpillar, that would be like the, the imaginal cells have just woken up and then you try to crack out of your, the caterpillar tries to crack mm. out of its cocoon and what happens is it just goes splat because it's still a soup. <laughs> and that is, that's what can happen to a human after that a soul encounter. resonates with my life experience at certain points. <laughs> uh, and hence the laughter, yes. 
Absolutely. And it resonates yeah. with many of the people we were guiding in our earlier years at Animus Valley Institute, that we would, in fact, encourage people to go home and get busy. Um, but you can't, because a soul encounter is not primarily information. That's the way we think in the Western yeah. world. You get the information, you get the blueprint, you get the job assignment, and then you get busy. Right. It's And a soul encounter is actually primarily like being struck by lightning um, or um, having some catalytic seed implanted in your psyche. And it takes a while for that seed to do its work or for that lightning to do its work. Mm. That the soul encounter has this profound effect on our psyches, but it takes a while for it to uh, do its metamorphic, which is to say it's transformative work on our egos. And that can take months, if not years, again, depending on how much guidance and how many, what kind of practices we have to support that. So the caterpillar um, is in the cocoon for quite some time after the imaginal cells awake and those imaginal cells are also kind of like architects and and carpenters and but more directly what they're they they build a butterfly or a moth body out of the recyclable materials of the former caterpillar mm. that takes some time mm. metamorphosis takes some time for us so we stay in the cocoon stage um, after soul encounter um, or even in still in the descent to soul experience after soul encounter and there's in my new book there's um i think at least eight categories of practices that help metamorphosis but i'll mention the primary one which we call experimental threshold crossings and and by the way it was my muse who recognized some years ago that we were missing something in the way we were guiding our programs at Animus. And the muse actually said, look, Bill, she said, Weaver, look, Weaver, you need, people need a bridge between soul encounter and the ability to enact or deliver their gift to their people. Mm -hmm. They need a bridge. And you could call this these experimental threshold crossings. I mean, that's what she said. Hmm. And, um, and so what they are, and of course we use the acronym ETCs, an experimental threshold crossing is when a person who's had a soul encounter um, finds new ways every day to show up in their social world as the person who's had that soul encounter. So for you, it would be perhaps showing up as a kind of warrior on the edge of a cliff with a sacred question staff in his hand. Mm. Um, and at this stage, and for me, it would be showing up as a person who weaves cocoons, mm. which is what I did for a few years mm. um, after my soul encounter. Mm. I was in the metamorphic mm -hmm. uh, phase for two or three years and not knowing what was happening to me. Um, that's one reason it took that long. Um, and when I say show up as that person, I don't mean trying to serve people or serve the world or to come up with some ultimate project that's going to change everything or that that you know uh, people will recognize us and mm. and see that we are these great servants of um of life and it's something it's much more modest 
in the metamorphic metamorphosis phase, namely, what person in my social group might I have some kind of conversation with today? And I'll be coming from this place, in my case, Cocoon Weaver, although I won't tell them that's where I'm coming from. I'll just imagine myself in that body. Or um, what social gathering that's happening in the world, in my community, would be one I'd be drawn to, especially one I would normally not go to. But mm. in my case, the Cocoon Weaver of me would go, would show up in that way. Or if I'm a poet, what kind of poems would I write from the body of Cocoon Weaver? Hmm. Just these very simple kind of questions. What, what It could be, what am I going to have for dinner from that place? Or <laughs> how would I express my love to my partner hmm. or spouse um, from that place? Or what would I tell one of my best friends that I've never told them if I was coming from that place? Hmm. And so these very simple things are not you're not trying to be of service yet. You're just trying to embody mm. this um, mythopoetic identity. Mm. And that is what shapeshifts us, that, those kinds of things. Mm. That's, that's really, it's really helpful. And it, it reminds me of, I've been doing a fairly deep dive into some of the Jungian archetypes, specifically mm -hmm. the, the king, warrior, magician, lover framework. And yeah. just the, the idea of, of imagining like how would a, how would a lover show up in this moment? How would how would my king show up in this moment? It's almost like you do. There are these these shifts that you can feel, and I I sense that I move through the world in a slightly different way. So I'm I'm actually really excited to give that a try, <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and and see what comes through. Um, yeah, thank you for that. Um, and and this is this is a bit of a I guess shifting gears slightly, but one question that is is really alive for me. Um, is is what is your perspective on the current like fascination with with entheogens or plant-based allies as you refer to them as and many of my own journeys into this underworld realm have been facilitated by by these medicines or by breathwork and so my question is what what in your opinion are some of the benefits some of the limits and potential pitfalls of working with plant medicines because it, it seems that they they can be a very powerful catalyst for this process but at the same time also insufficient without proper guidance or understanding of this underworld territory we humans have always been fascinated with alterations in consciousness with non-ordinary consciousness it's 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 just perfectly and fundamentally human uh, to do that because our mode of consciousness is, is something that is perhaps most unique mm. to our species. It's one thing um, that is unusual in the living world in general, our particular mode of conscious self-awareness. Mm. Um, so it's natural for starting in early childhood to um, alter consciousness. And we have, we know that we have humans have co-evolved with um, certain plant allies, sacred medicines that alter consciousness and, and, and co-evolved because we um, have cultivated those plants because of how they serve us. It's a reciprocal relationship. And mm -hmm. um, so um, 
relatively healthy young people, or just more generally people in the psychological stage of early adolescence, uh, feel this calling to shift consciousness in various kinds of ways through various practices, um, but also through various um, substances. Um, and the benefits and pitfalls, like everything else that I've been saying today, depends on what stage you're in. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. In childhood, entheogens are probably a really bad idea. Mm. Um, but in uh, after puberty, um, they can be even in well, the person's in early adolescence, they can be helpful. So for me, for example, in my starting my late teens and early 20s, I experimented, as it were, with a variety of entheogens. And um, I learned lots from those experiences. But the primary thing I would say that happened for me is that I understood, beginning with the first entheogenic journey, that reality was a very different kind of thing than I had thought beforehand. Yep. Uh, certainly different than any of my parents or teachers had um, ever spoken of. of. Mm. Um, but it wasn't, you know, primarily an intellectual experience. Of course, it was a um, deep psychic and somatic experience that this world is way more mysterious. Um, and I believe that helped Entheogens helped shift me um, from early adolescence into late adolescence. And in fact, I think that happened for a lot of people of my generation, um, which is to say the hippie segment of the baby boomers. <laughs> a lot of us got into the cocoon stage mm. uh, thanks to um, compliments of entheogens, mm. but we didn't know what to do with it. We didn't know right. what was happening with us. And so a lot of us got stuck in the cocoon stage. Right. That's a whole nother story. Um, so if you're in early adolescence, the entheogens can help move you along because they can open certain pathways in our psyches, a nervous system, but our psyches more directly said that um, can enhance our capacity to cultivate our authenticity, our social authenticity. That a, a lot of things fall away, a lot of things of superficial early adolescent life falls away after an entheogenic journey, mm -hmm. um, if we survive it physically and psychologically. <laughs> So yeah, there are pitfalls that um, some egos are not well enough developed in early adolescence to do well with entheogens, <clears throat> especially in a context like the Western world where there's few social circles that understand entheogens as or psychedelics as sacred medicine, um, that we don't have those our own traditions. Uh, well, we do, but we, They've been lost so long ago, like the Eocinian mysteries of the ancient Greeks mm -hmm. who were using a um, apparently a form of uh, ergot, a fungus of, uh, of rye mm -hmm. um, as an entheogen. Mm. Yep. Um, but speaking more directly to people who are in the cocoon stage, um, here's a story I've made up that might very well be true. And that is that, um, that, many if not most 
intact indigenous cultures, one of the tools, if you will, I hesitate to use that word, but one of the resources that they have um, to support the journey of soul initiation are these sacred medicines. But it's not just, you know, go to the corner medicine person and pick up um, a, a dose of medicine and take it away somewhere. It's that that in in a intact uh, cultural context, there's um, preparation for the experience, and it's the experience takes place during a ceremony. Mm -hmm. And there's more to the ceremony, way more to the ceremony than just the sacred medicine. There's the the music or the songs. Um, there's the prayers that are said. There's how everything's set up, and there's the myths that are told or already have are known by everybody. Mm -hmm. And after the ceremony, there is an integration period that is supported. This is the story I'm making up that might very well be true by um, initiators, adult initiators, or elders. Whereas in the Western world, what most people have who are experimenting with psychedelics is just the plant or the drug mm -hmm. and not the preparation, not the ceremonial context and not the integration, but that's starting to change. There are mm -hmm. uh, groups as you sure you know, Johnny around the world who are helping to prepare people now and are um, providing ceremonial context either by indigenous, um, for example, ayahuascaros, uh, medicine people, or by those um, Western people who've been trained how to um, conduct these ceremonies and there's an integration period. And so that's what I would encourage people, especially if you're in the cocoon, mm -hmm. um, that you, if you're going to use entheogens as one of your um, transforming agents, that you have support by someone who who knows how to lead you through that experience mm. yeah thank you thank you for sharing that um something that comes to mind um this is a little bit of a tangent but i have a I have a number of friends who have been diagnosed with various mental health conditions be it, be it bipolar or depression and some have at times referred to periods of, of what's known as suicidal ideation i.e like thinking about killing themselves. And on the surface, this sounds really terrifying, but I've been wondering if viewed with a soulcraft lens, this could be maybe reframed as, as more of their deeper sensitivity and a, a deeper knowing that part of their ego needs to die, but they lack the cultural context of, of soul work to recognize this. And, and so do you, do you think there is perhaps a case to be made for for certain people who are moving towards this cocoon phase to to help have safe containers for this soul descent instead of you know traditionally prescribing mood stabilizers like citalopram or, or lamotrigine or, or things like this? Um, I realize this is a, a delicate topic, but I'm curious if you have any any thoughts on this. Oh yeah. <laughs> libraries full of that's on, on this. so much to say <laughs> yeah. um again it depends on what stage a person life stage a person is in yeah. um and it depends what we mean by words like depression so for me a depressed person is almost always um someone who's 
um, humanness has gotten stuck. Um, hmm. In particular, it's usually their emotions, their emotional life has gotten stuck, that there's some really big emotional events or catalysts in their psyche and in their bodies, uh, but they're not able to access it. And, um, and so depression from that point of view is uh, the absence of feeling uh, and the absence of, of an emotional process that needs to happen for the person. They're not, they're stuck. They're not able to go through it. They're, they have inner protectors who are keeping them from their own emotions. Mm-hmm. So shorthand depression is essentially stuck emotions. And so a person who's depressed has to feel more. That's almost the opposite of the way we think about it in the Western world. A person who's depressed has a really bad case of sadness and they need to cheer up or something like that. <laughs> but it's the exact opposite. A person who's depressed is not feeling a whole range of emotions as fully as they need to and, mm-hmm. and being and assimilate, they need to assimilate those emotions um, to become alive again. Uh, and for the most part, antidepressants further depress people. They keep them further, they get them, antidepressants get the ego so far away from the emotions that a person feels sort of better. Mm. Um, but in, in, in some ways they're worse. Uh, I should have a, you know, I'm a recovering psychologist, so I should note here that <laughs> um, seriously suicidal, suicidal people can be helped by antidepressants because mm-hmm. if they're dead, they're not gonna be helped by anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's sometimes reasons for these drugs, but I think in most, the vast majority of cases, they are incorrectly prescribed and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so depression is one thing, um, but if we're really talking about sadness or grief that we haven't fully experienced, then we of course need support in doing that. And, and what so many of us have learned is that if we go deep into a grief, we become more alive than we've ever been. Mm-hmm. And grieving actually empowers us. Um, and we, we're hoping that more and more Western psychotherapists get the message and psychiatrists and religious professionals and educators and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it all depends really on what stage we're in. If we're in the cocoon, we're going to, experience deeper kinds of grief and different different sorts of grief than we did in earlier stages. And that's congratulations and getting to a later stage and we're able to go deeper into our psyches. And so the journey of soul initiation, especially for contemporary people often has a um, intensive in, intense period of, of grieving things that we weren't able to grieve earlier. Mm. Um, and this again helps us become more alive. Then there's mm-hmm. diagnoses, you know, like contemporary psychiatric and psychological diagnoses are just a travesty. They're they're just like studied ways to not understand humans and to mm-hmm. and to treat humans as uh, as mm-hmm. problems. And um, and but uh, there is a certain progressive. Um, dimension of, of course, psychology that we've been understanding this now for some decades and, and, and psychotherapists of this sort have threw out the diagnostic and statistic manual decades ago and 
realize it for, as the travesty that it is. And so one of the things I've been actually trying to do in my work is to create a positive way of understanding humans who are having challenges um, so that we see that um, what we used to call, or some people, too many people still call um, psychological disorders or mental illness, what an awful term, that um, that these aren't diseases, these are actually the absence of the cultivation of our wholeness. Mm. And so the work we're doing at Animus, one of our training programs, it's called the Wild Mind Training Programs, we're training therapists and coaches and psychiatrists and educators and um, people of all kinds of professions uh, to be able to understand when they're working with an individual, what dimensions of wholeness are least developed in this person. And that's the primary intervention is helping them develop their wholeness mm. and then helping them heal themselves. Mm. Um, that's, I think everybody could recognize that is not the mode of Western yeah. psychotherapy. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Bi bipolar is, is an example of a contemporary psychiatric diagnosis that is, is very harmful um, in the sense the diagnosis itself isn't, but the way people are treated with um, various medications. Um, in my new book, Gil, one of the stories is many, many stories. There are people who've gone through the journey of soul initiation as one um, is a man who was diagnosed in his early adulthood, uh, what we call adulthood in the Western world, which is say in his 20s, um, with bipolar disorder. And he went through the psychiatric gamut for some 10 years or so of a series of drugs. Um, and then he met some people who uh, understood that behind that diagnosis was actually one of his soul powers. And mm -hmm. so people with um, bipolar diagnoses are often, I can't say always, I haven't studied this carefully, but are often people people who have a capacity at first is experienced as a liability or a vulnerability to have these consciousness shifts. Mm. But we, um, the person doesn't know how to uh, manage it or um, uh, use that power. So this story of this man, Kevin, that you'll, people if read my new book will find is he discovered how to um, ground himself when these non-ordinary consciousness stages uh, experiences were happening and to consciously use that as one of his soul powers in his work. He's a, um, a forest and river uh, restoration ecologist and doing mm. absolutely brilliant visionary work that he would not have been able to do if it wasn't for this soul power that was first diagnosed as a as an illness. Mm. Um, so, just one example. Wow, that's that's an incredibly incredibly powerful story, um, and something that I've been thinking about in my own life is this this idea of creating like a personal ecology of embodied practices. And we we mentioned before we hit record here of almost like forming a curriculum for growing up and for me integral theory and things like that have been useful as well as your own work 
Um, and you briefly mentioned the importance of, of what you referred to as mystery schools that might act as, as nurturing safe spaces for people to explore these, these more contemporary soul-steeped um, practices with some loving guidance. And I find this really fascinating. And I'd love to hear what, what do you imagine this, this looks like? And are there any examples of this that you know of apart from Animas that already exist in the world? And do you think that this might be possible on a large enough scale in, in the years and decades to come? I do think it's possible. And there are um, experiments around the world, a few of which I know of, of, of doing this. And not only do I feel it's possible, I think it's necessary. I mean, if we survive the current set of environmental and uh, economic and social collapses we're in the midst of now, then, and if we're starting to um, create not only life-sustaining societies, but life-enhancing ones, then these kinds of mystery schools will once again be absolutely necessary. Um, so in some ways, that's what we're doing at Animus. Um, our primary work is for people who are, are in the cocoon and ready for the journey of soul initiation. But um, probably only 25% of the people who come to us are ready for that when they first come. And so our so for 75% of the people who first come to us, we're helping them uh, cultivate their facets of wholeness and learning how to self-heal and addressing unfinished business from earlier stages of life. Um, and which I hope that doesn't sound like uh, drudgery. It's actually a very <laughs> exciting, uh, arousing uh, uh work it's a great adventure doing the preparation work too mm. um so but one thing we've been talking about for years is having a an actual community on the ground on a piece of land and instead of simply offering you know five day long or eight day long or 14 day long uh, experiences that we do now that people would come and live for maybe a year or so mm. at a place where there would be a community grounded by people who live there, uh, um, you know, what we would call permanently, that whose homes are there and who are guides um, and um, supported to go through the experience without, you know, having to sign up with for some five-day program and travel somewhere for it. So in other words, in a healthy community, there aren't things like animus programs. There's true elders and true adults who recognize what experiences people are having, uh, including the, the, the way they're being called to the initiation journey and then they're supported within the community. Mm. Again, that's ultimately, as you've been asking here, that's ultimately, I think, where we need to go and can go. Um, there's a um, college in England that Janine and I have taught at for several years called Schumacher College. And they, I believe they have the foundation to create that kind of, the kind of mystery school we're talking about. They haven't done it yet, but um, there's many pieces of what they're doing that is very um, aligned and conducive to such a thing. And then there's um, a few other communities I know about, but one I'll mention is a school, a high school and a community in Virginia uh, in the town of Floyd, Virginia, 
called Springhouse School or, or the Springhouse Community. And they are well on their way. They're eight years into creating a mystery school, not just for high school students, but for um, the parents and adults of the community, of the larger community of their town there in the, um, in the mountains of uh, Western Virginia. Um, so there, and there's other communities I know of who are experimenting with this. And I believe it is, yes, exactly where we need to go. Um, and we're learning a lot along the way. Mm. Super interesting. Um, just, just briefly, I'm, I'm kind of putting myself in the shoes of listeners now who might be thinking that this is all incredibly intriguing and they might be curious to learn more but maybe not ready to commit to a a 14-day uh anima spiritual adventure um besides obviously buying a copy of your book what might be a practical starting point for some listeners who are maybe looking to take steps towards strengthening their four facets um and and i i think one really big question is is who would you recommend does explore a quest and how would they know when they're ready? Because I can imagine a lot of listeners, you know, resonating with certain descriptions, but not necessarily knowing if, if they're ready yet. One way to know is if you've heard um, what Joseph Campbell called the call to spiritual adventure. Hmm. Um, and this is where you start you're feeling a longing to enter the mysteries of life, or as Mary Oliver said, to stride deeper and deeper into the world, mm. determined to do the only thing you can do, determined to save the only life you can save. If you're feeling this mystery longing that's pulling you away from everyday social events to some degree at least, um, but this sense that the world is more mysterious than you've been able to um, fully experience yet. And it feels like a call to the depths. One of the images we use for the descent to soul is, is entering down into a canyon, mysterious canyon, we call it Soul Canyon. Um, if you're feeling this call, um, it's not just a call to like change your job or your primary relationship or where you live, that those are early adolescent things that are really important to enhancing our personal authenticity. But I'm talking about um, this deeper sense of the world as a mysterious place and that you were born with a particular uh, gift for this world that cannot be identified or described in terms of any social role or job or vocation or creative project. It's something, it's what we call the mythopoetic identity. In my case, it in part has to do with weaving cocoons of transformation. If you're feeling this call, then I'd recommend that you withdraw somewhat more from everyday social life. It doesn't have to be completely. Um, in order to um, wander in the most... Um, uh, undeveloped places you can get yourself to. A city park will do if that's the best you can and go alone. Uh, and write 
letters or poems to whatever it is you feel is calling to you. You could call it your soul if you want, or mystery or something else. Um, in other words, uh, encourage your own longing, deepen it, and it will hurt mm. to deepen it. And it'll hurt in just the right kind of way. Um, and more generally, spending time in as natural, uh, undeveloped environments as you can, uh, can be very, very effective. But again, I need to give a kind of a caution here that if you're not sure you're in the cocoon, if it may be you're still in uh, the early adolescent stage that I call the oasis, then please keep in mind everybody that um, social withdrawal is the worst thing you could possibly do. And mm. we know for in this early adolescent stage, which again is what most people in the contemporary world are in mm. uh, after puberty, that um, a, a strong social connection and social circle is as essential as anything is to psychological health. And, you, and withdrawing from that is a sign that something's really wrong. Hmm. So that's why knowing what stage you're in is so important because it's the opposite in the cocoon. <laughs> that if you just stay in this every minute social world, you'll never get any further in, um, with the journey of soul initiation. You need hmm. to spend some more alone time or time with fellow initiates. Hmm. Like we know from so many intact indigenous traditions around the world, that when a person is ready for the initiatory journey, they um, they leave or are taken out of the everyday village life for some time. Hmm. Okay, so there's some initial ideas. Yeah, that's that's super helpful, and I, I love the um, the image of I, I was reminded of the Rilke line: "Going to the limits of your longing," and it mm -hmm. sounds like that that is a good description for that phase. Um, yes. Okay, well, I'm I'm really conscious of being respectful of your time. Um, would it be okay to ask a few rapid fire questions, and then we'll okay. begin to wrap up? Okay. Um, so the first one is, uh, what does it mean to fill one space with a question? Um, yeah, it's one of the practices that we use for people on the journey or the descent to soul. Um, it's taking some of the, the big sacred questions that are in your life, if you're on the descent to soul, and instead of trying to answer them or asking anyone else to answer them, um, wherever you are, like if you're out on the land somewhere, you just fill the space with the question, which means you just keep repeating the question. And if the question wants to change slightly, it's wording, let it change. And so there's, um, it's honoring as Rilke does, you know, the, the questions and letting the questions do their work on us and not trying to come up with an answer in the western world that puts so much emphasis on the strategic and rational mind we think you know we got to come figure out the answers well the answer to who we really are can never be figured anything we figure out is not the answer <laughs> it's something we discover mm. um and we're and we're changed by it's not something that we use our strategic mind to figure out. So the thing to do with questions that we normally don't do in the Western world is just like um, fill 
a pond full of that question and swim in the pond and mm-hmm. and thank any part of you that tries to come up with some answers. And um, if it does come up with any answers, I like to say, imagine there's a wall behind you with a shelf that's labeled some of the world's best answers and put that answer on that shelf and then turn your back and keep swimming in the question. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I'm going to use that myself. That's great. I might even make that. Um, Great. Second question. If, if Carl Jung were alive today, what might you be curious to ask him, if anything? Uh-huh. <laughs> Good one. I'd say, um, Carl, I've got this model of the descent to soul, and I believe what you went through in your experience, experiences, 1913 to 1916, that you call your confrontation with the unconscious, was a descent to soul, and that what you experienced could be described with these five phases of this model I developed. And you went through the experience, but you actually never created a system to help other people go through the same experience. And Jungian analysts don't learn how to do that, and they don't do it. So this model, Carl, does it fit or what am I missing? Hmm. Okay. Uh, question number three, did Gaia goof? Uh, and is it possible that the emergence of the human ego is a mistake or is she maybe trying to midwife her own future in ways that we can't foresee? Yeah, I like that. I think she is doing something like midwifing her own future. Um, I don't think Kaya goofed. I think she took a risk by creating a species with conscious self-awareness like us and with our capacity to manipulate the physical world in the way we do. She took a great risk. She was and is, I believe, doing something like creating an evolutionary partner but for us to get to that capacity of truly being an evolutionary capacity, uh, partner with her, and we as a species have to go through an initiatory process. And it's not the 20th and 21st century, it's the last 5,000 years or so that we've been going through an initiatory process. And we're near the end of that process where we're going to find out um, whether we survive it or not. Because like any individual, certainly in a indigenous tradition, going through the journey of soul initiation, it's always possible to not physically survive it. Mm. And um, the, the village is okay with that because the alternative is much worse. That means mm. the whole village ends up being in a survival mode after a few generations if, if they lose their initiatory practices. Mm. So um, just like it's possible for an individual not to physically survive an initiatory process, it's possible for a species not to, and it's possible for a whole planet not to. Mm. So it's as if Gaia is just a story I'm making up. 
as if Geyer felt ready for her own initiatory process that was catalyzed, that would be catalyzed by the human species. Um, but I'd say, no, Gaia is not in danger of not surviving, but this um, extraordinary past, what is it, 65 million years of the proliferation and diversification of life, that beautiful experiment, astonishing experiment of Gaia's, that one could fail. And we might just find ourselves hoping and believing that she'll start over. Mm. or take the next, just let's say, take the next step. Um, so it's really our species that, and so many other species we're taking, have been taking down with us um, that may not survive. So no, I don't think Gaia goofed. <laughs> I think she <laughs> took a big, a big and necessary risk. Mm. Okay, finally, what is your most sincere hope and aspiration for this book? Hmm. You know, I primarily wrote it for generations, um, several out into the future from now. Hmm. And I was going to say that on the very first page and the editor of the press said, nope, don't say that because um, contemporary readers, 2021 20, readers will take that as meaning you didn't write it for them, which isn't true. I've also wrote it for people alive now. But um, my main hope in writing this book is that it might be a support to communities of the future in creating those kind of mystery schools we talked about earlier, Johnny, mm. um, and of creating um, healthy life-enhancing cultures. Um, and it's only going to be small groups or organizations here and there over the next hundred years or more that probably be ready for such a thing. Um, so yeah, for this, for this book, I hope it, it lasts, it's available long enough to support, um, the communities that will be ready to employ and improve the methods and the models that are in there. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> well, this has been, this has been an absolute pleasure, Bill. Um, mm -hmm. Where is the best place for listeners to learn more about your new, your new book um, and discover the Animas quests being offered uh, this year? Yeah. By the way, our programs, uh, only a certain small percentage of them are, are, are vision fasts um, and there's many other kinds of programs. Um, but the best place is our website, which is www.animus.org. And animus, that's a mispronunciation of um, the Spanish word animas, um, which means souls. And we call it uh, Animus Valley Institute because that's where we are in Southwest Colorado. Um, and animas is spelled A-N-I-M-A-S dot O-R-G. Perfect. And as a, as a reminder, links to all of this and things we've mentioned will also be in the show notes, um, along obviously with, with links to your book and, and those kind of things. So to 
to wrap up, the question that I usually end with is a question that's borrowed from Rilke. Um, what are the questions that you feel like you're living? But I actually want to deviate slightly and ask a question which I posed to David White a couple of years ago. And the question is, what do you think is the question that we as humans in the Western world are asking and trying to live our way into at the moment? Or perhaps which questions should we be asking that we're currently not? I'd say the the big question is how can we become um, full uh, members and participants in the more than human world? How can we learn to experience and to act um, in relationship to the world as sacred? Um, yeah, this, before there's going to be many people ready for the journey of soul initiation, we need to become what I call a healthy early adolescent. Our, all our societies need to become healthy early adolescent, which is to say, um, have awakened to the sacredness of all life. So how can we be um, loving, reciprocal, participants in this sacred and enchanted world. Okay, Bill, thank you so much. We will wrap the show with that. Thank you, Johnny. Very much enjoyed this conversation. And I've um, been experiencing it since you mentioned it, that um, I'm speaking with a warrior on a cliff mm. with a staff of sacred question in his hands. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.